Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. This week's episode of Land Ethic features Chris Wood, CEO of Trout Unlimited, a leading nonprofit organization dedicated to the conservation of freshwater streams and rivers. I learned a lot about Chris from his personal journey as an angler and a conservationist to some of the initiatives undertaken by Trout Unlimited. One of the most interesting threads I thought from our conversation was the role of the individual sportsman and private landowner in conservation of freshwater systems. Chris was really charismatic and a fun interview, and I look forward to hopefully catching up with him in the future. Enjoy. Chris, thanks for joining me. Oh, it's great to be with you, Dylan. I, uh, I recently came across your work in, in doing some research on trout and their habitat and ecology. I came across your uh, My Healthy Stream handbook for, uh, for landowners, and I found it really helpful even as a non-landowner, as just a, a novice angler. Um, so I just kind of wanted to get your we'll, – we'll jump back into that soon, but I wanted to get your background, your career path, and um, – a little bit more about Trout Unlimited and your mission. Terrific. Um, yeah, the My Healthy Stream uh, book was a great project. I did that in collaboration with Jack Williams, who was then our senior scientist uh, and a super important mentor of mine, and uh, Mike Dombeck, another important mentor of mine, who was the only person who led both the Bureau of Land Management and the U.S. Forest Service. Um, and we were trying with that book to... Um, basically create an accessible guide for landowners. You don't, people who don't, don't have a, you know, a degree in limnology or fisheries, uh, you know, fisheries biology to still understand some common step, common sense steps that they could take to, uh, you know, improve the health of their, of their local streams. Um, It's interesting that, you know, you, you've merged my healthy streams and, and that book, Dylan, because uh, those two people were instrumental. Those two co-authors were instru- instrumental in, in the start of my career. Um, I uh, began my, maybe I'll, I mean, I'll try not to give you the long version, but if you'd like, I could tell you how I got started in conservation yeah. and how I intersected with both Mike and Jack. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, so I, um, I grew up in, in New Jersey and uh, we, we never left New Jersey really. Um, we did a trip when I was a kid to Ireland to visit uh, family there, but otherwise, uh, you know, I, I don't. I don't think I ever left the borders of the Garden State. And you know, we were a big family of, of you know, played a lot of athletics, and that was kind of our life. And then uh, I went to college at Middlebury, and I got into fishing there. I had a little brother who, um, in the Big Brother Little Brother program, whose therapist thought that fishing would be a, you know, a good therapy for him. And yeah. um, uh, so we got really into fishing. And, um, you know, I used to do this thing up there where I would you know, have a day of fishing. And for me, a day of fishing meant literally going out at eight in the morning and coming back the next morning at eight, after having fished for 24 hours. 
wow. which is a super good way to learn the local rivers uh, of Vermont. Not so good for your classwork, though. Um, <laughs> and were you mostly, uh, were they native brook trout at that time, or were they stocked rainbow? What so, were you catching? you know, it's interesting. I didn't care. Um, yeah. I would fish for, you know, pike, bass, trout. Um, they had sheep's head in the Virgens River, carp. Um, in my senior year, I discovered that there were these native brook trout up in um, uh, up in the headwaters in the Green Mountain National Forest, and I would sneak up there and catch little native brookies, which was super <laughs> cool, kind of an awakening yeah. for me. Um, but before that, really, it, it was whatever that was the tug on the end of the line is all I really cared about. I'm not really that much different today in my fishing. Um, <laughs> you know, I still love fishing for gar in the Potomac and uh, carp and uh, largemouth trout are super fun to catch, but I'm an equal opportunity angler. Okay. So but anyway, so I, I, I graduated Middlebury and I was uh, coaching high school football and bartending and making ice cream in New Jersey. <laughs> and my buddy Mick invited me to go to Alaska where he was putting his uh, liberal arts degree to equally good use bartending at the Land's End Bar in Homer, Alaska. And, and living on the Homer Spit, which is a little bit of beach they had there in a tent. And so he encouraged me to go out and visit him. And I went up there on a, I had a break and I went up, with, I think it was before the season started, the football season. And <clears throat> I went up and uh, he said one day, hey, you ought to take my car and drive down to the Kenai Peninsula and you can fish for salmon. And I said, okay, I had heard about salmon, but I didn't know anything about them. And so I, um, I borrowed Mick's VW Rabbit, and I, I drove down to uh, near Anchorage to the Kenai Peninsula to a place called the Anchor River. Um, and I camped on the sand in a near where the river entered the salt. And um, I got there kind of late, and I had a can of stew or whatever, and put the tent up, made camp, and went to bed. And got, you know, I was getting ready to fish early the next morning. And... Uh, what I didn't know is that, you know, in New Jersey, we have, uh, you know, 18 inch tides, maybe two foot tides. Oh, no. <laughs> in Alaska, they have 10 foot tides. Yeah. So, and the real problem was that the, the VW Rabbit was parked in front of the tent. Oh, so my when gosh. The, when the tide came in my tent, my first thought wasn't, oh, no, everything's wet. My first thought was, oh, no, the car's underwater. <laughs> and was it it was yeah it oh, took man. uh three or four cans of gum out and a, a very friendly stranger from alaska who towed me out but i got that i got that engine clean and i got the car running again um yeah. and mick to this day doesn't know that that happened to his car um, <laughs> well he might hear this if he, no, if he, i may have to send this to him <laughs> so anyway so i started walking up the anchor river around three four o'clock i was you know by the time i got everything sorted out and I'm walking up the river, and uh, I start to see these dead and dying fish that are littering the bank. And they're giant. These are big king or Chinook salmon. I was fishing for the silver, so the kings had already spawned, mm. and they were, you know, on their way out. But I didn't know that. And and these fish had these hooked jaws and, and these big humped backs, and and some of them looked like zombie fish, more dead than alive. They were sloughing flesh off their bodies and. I remember there was one in the shallows and I, I took the my nine foot fly rod and I kind of tipped it 
tipped this fish with the tip of my rod and I watched it, you know, slither off into the current more dead than alive. And I thought, I can't believe this. I finally leave New Jersey. I, I come to the great state of Alaska. And obviously there's been some kind of toxic spill upstream that's dumped acid in the river and is killing all these fish. Hmm. And uh, I walk upstream a little further. I never stepped in the river. I've, to this day, I have never stepped foot in the Anchor River. And uh, there was some idiot standing in the middle of the river casting. And I, uh, I, I was watching him and he was looking over his shoulder, watching me watch him. And after a while, he, he looks over his shoulder and he says, what? What are you looking at? And I said, well, what are you doing? He said, I'm fishing. I said, aren't you worried about whatever killed all these fish getting on you and getting on your skin? The guy looks at me, he goes, what are you talking about? I said, you see all the dead fish <laughs> right around the bend? He goes, dude, those are salmon. That's what happens to salmon. They die. <laughs> and I said, yeah, right. And uh, I walked away. I went back to the car and I drove to the Anchorage Public Library thinking that this guy was a liar. And I took out two books on salmon. And I read them by firelight that night. And I learned about this remarkable life history that they have where they return, they go to the ocean and then they return to their natal stream. And along the way, they drop their, their gills change. They drop their scales. And they go through this remarkable physiological change that, like mm -hmm. I say, humps their back and kipes their jaw. And uh, they begin to feed on the, on their own, internal fat that they've stored in the ocean to go back to the very place that they were born and have sex one time <laughs> before they die. And then their bodies, their decaying bodies, those fish that I saw in the Anchor River, they provide the nutrients that allow that whole ecosystem to exist. The bears, the eagles, everything, the biomass in the river, trout. And I was just so absolutely blown away by this that that night by firelight i um i resigned my i wrote a letter of resignation to the ice cream factory when i got back i found out very quickly i didn't need to write a letter of resignation <laughs> and uh i did finish coaching we, we won the state championship that year and okay nice uh, in saint at saint peter's in jersey city and um and i it was monday morning i was sitting at home at my parents kitchen table and my father comes down and my father is a, you know, a tough guy from, from Newark, New Jersey. Uh, not, we didn't have a hunting and fishing tradition in my family at all. Mm. Um, my grandfather used to love to fish, but my, it didn't pass down to my dad. He was a big time basketball player. And so I'm sitting at my parents' kitchen table and my dad says what, what every father should say to a you know, 22, 23 year old who's at home on a Monday at their house on a Monday, you know, uh, during the work week, well, what the hell are you doing here? Aren't you at work? Yeah. And I said, dad, I, I've resigned my ice cream, my job at the ice cream factory. And, uh, he said, well, what the hell are you going to do? And I said, uh, that day I pointed to, to a picture in the newspaper and that day as fate would have it, above the fold of the New York times, there was a picture of a guy named Keith Edwards kneeling next to a lake. And he was a fish and wildlife service biologist. And he said, it saddens me, the caption under the photograph was, it saddens me that I work at a lake that's named for a fish that doesn't return any, anymore. And that was the year that one sockeye salmon made it back to Redfish Lake. And some of your listeners may know that 
sockeye when they uh, return to spawn they get all red they get all red it's a brilliant red color you can see them in the water and um the the wags named that fish lonesome larry it was the only sockeye that returned that year that made wow. the you know 770 mile journey climbing 400 feet in elevation traversing eight dams avoiding predators of all sort along the way only to Unreal. get back to his natal stream and and not have a female sockeye to spawn with. And so I pointed at that picture in the paper. I just read the article and I said to dad, dad, I'm going to save the salmon. That's what I'm going to do. And I'm not going to tell you what my father's response to that was, but it was very colorful. <laughs> and, um, but, but I, I tell you that story for, for a reason, because I, I go to work every morning um, with the firm belief that I, in, in conjunction with all my colleagues at TU and all of our many partners and other conservation organizations, we will in fact save the salmon. And it's that sense of optimism that drives me in, in, in everything I do um, in conservation uh, to this day. And I had the good fortune, I ended up going out and becoming a, a seasonal employee. I was, frankly, a volunteer at first with the U.S. Forest Service in Idaho because I, I wanted to research the, the salmon problem in the Snake River. I ended up uh, working out there for, I don't know, four or five months. I lived in a trailer at the Lucky Peak Nursery, and then we would go out into the forest and do these paired watershed studies where we looked at healthy watersheds and like, you know, pool width ratios of a healthy stream versus yeah. like, and bug life versus watersheds that have been eroded and mined and logged and what we saw there and how many, what the biomass was in the healthy one versus the unhealthy one. And then on weekends, I would come back and sit in my trailer and work on this, on this paper about saving salmon, uh, you know, and I didn't know anything. I was a complete and utter sponge. I was a total sponge. And I was running around town interviewing people, uh, people who remain heroes to me to this day, people like Pat Ford, who started the Save Our Salmon Coalition, and Ed Cheney. There were so many that, that uh, were so important to me along the way, generous with their time. But this one fellow I work with, Louis Wasniewski, who is now a hydrologist with the Forest Service, said, when you get back to D.C., you ought to meet my – because I was dating a girl in D.C. and I wanted to get back. He said, you ought to um, – you ought to look up my uncle Mike. And that was Mike Dombeck, who at the time uh, was a special assistant over at the Forest Service. And he introduced me to Jack Williams. And Jack gave me a job uh, for the Fish and Wild at the Fish and Wildlife Program of the BLM. And that, that's the Bureau of Land Management. And then mm -hmm. a few years later, Mike was asked to, to head the US Forest Service. And I went with him over there. And uh, the big thing we did at the Forest Service was we ended up developing a rulemaking that protected about 58 and a half million acres of so-called roadless lands. These are wilderness quality lands that are 5,000 acres or larger, uh, but that haven't been designated as wilderness. And so we wanted to keep those intact because uh, they're so important for drinking water and for fish and wildlife habitat. And it was immensely controversial, but we got it done and it remains in effect today. And that was essentially the path to <laughs> getting here. Okay, and, and Trout Unlimited uh, specifically, I showed you my membership card before we started. Yes, I love that, here. Dylan. Uh, I am a basic $35 a year member uh, recently, but uh, I want to learn more about your specific mission as an organization. And um, if I'm, you know, where's my $35 going? Yeah, it's a great question. So after the Forest Service, I, I had the opportunity to leave the agency um, when President Bush was elected. Um, you know, it was going to be, it was kind of clear that it was time for me to go. 
and I wasn't sure where I wanted to go. But when I was in the Forest Service, I, I took all the meetings that my boss didn't want to take, which was just about all of them. And so I heard from the regulated community, the you know off-road vehicle people, the snowmobile people, the uh, timber folks, oil and gas, you know, all of them. And they were very unhappy with what we were doing on the roadless rule. And then I heard from the environmental community, you know, the Wilderness Society, the Sierra Club, NRDC, and they were saying we weren't going far enough. But the one community that I didn't hear for that stood to gain the most from the roadless rule was the hunting and fishing community. And they never came in. They didn't have one meeting with us uh, during that mm -hmm. rulemaking. And I thought that's really bizarre. And so when I left the agency, I wanted to try to find an organization where we could create an analog to the environmental community, but with hunters and anglers. Because I thought this, you know, 60 million people was such a potentially forceful block that had been largely ignored by one political party and taken for granted by the other. And if activated as a force for conservation, could be, it could be incredibly powerful. And this is before, yeah. uh, you know, the backcountry hunters and anglers existed. It was before the... Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. It was really before anybody was organizing hunters and anglers. And so I wanted to go, I, ultimately I picked Trout Unlimited because they had a great grassroots presence in the field and they had a policy presence in Washington, even though, albeit a small one. And so um, I came to TU and we did, we created that, uh, we called it at the time Public Lands Initiative. It's now called the Angler Conservation Project, but they work on protecting the most important habitats for trout and salmon. So to get to your question directly, Dylan, when we do four things at Trout Unlimited, four basic things in service of our mission of protecting and restoring trout and salmon in the watersheds they depend on. First, we protect the highest quality habitats for trout and salmon, which are typically found high in higher elevation areas in these so-called roadless areas, which are mountainous in the West on your national forests and other high elevation lands in the east. We protect those, but because of climate change, we can't draw circles on a map uh, and, and call it a day and call it an area protected and walk away because floods, fire and drought know no boundaries and they can affect a wilderness area just as, a, as significantly as a, a private lands downstream. So yeah. we protect those high quality habitats. Then we work to reconnect those river systems to lower elevation areas. And, and what I mean by reconnecting a river system, it could be something as complex and, and um, it could be as complex an undertaking as taking out the Klamath River dams, which we plan to do next year. Uh, and the Klamath system straddles Oregon and California. And when we take those dams out, it will open up about 500 miles of habitat for trout and salmon that have been lost for a century. Wow. Um, or the Snake River dams, which is the best and probably only hope we have to recover Snake River salmon, but reconnecting river systems can also be as mundane as uh, fixing perch culverts, right? The, the, a culvert is the pipe that goes beneath the road that connects the upstream side of the river to the downstream side. And many times what happens is on the downstream side, the force of the water, you know, you know, erodes down below the bottom of the pipe and you get a gap and they call them perched culverts. And that means that fish can't move up and down a river system in response to you know flood or fire or drought. And then finally, what we do is uh, we, we, we do watershed scale restoration on both the higher elevation areas, the mid elevation areas, but especially the valley bottoms 
which were the most biologically productive portion of the landscape initially, but that were also, it's also where people settled. So protecting, reconnecting, and restoring these river systems is the basic biological mandate of the organization. Um, and then uh, sustaining that work over time is the social imperative. And we accomplish that objective by uh, you know, engaging our members in advocacy, uh, by training them. We have a whole youth, uh, youth component, our, our stream of, we call it the stream of engagement where we get kids involved in conservation from a very young age all the way through college. Um, and then we have you know, programs that work, for example, with first responders and help people to deal with the stress of PTSD uh, through the healing power of, of running water. Beautiful. Um, that's quite an endeavor, and I'm excited to be a member now. I'm a member of the Guadalupe River chapter here down here in, uh, near Austin. And um, I think you, you touched on this a little bit, but I'm, I'm also, I didn't come from a family with a strong hunting and fishing um, background. And so I'm kind of an adult onset hunter and fisher. And I came into this world where and now it seems that uh, brands and the outdoor industry as a whole has really embraced conservation and understands the importance of it. And hunters and anglers are, if not unified, well-educated on, on the issues facing them, facing access, environmental degradation, etc., uh, largely because of people like yourself, I think. But um, can you talk a little bit more about being an ethical angler, understanding the issues facing your, you know, the species in your area, and being informed on, you know, should I should I catch and release today? Should I not fish this area at all? Being able to analyze stream health, all the things that you need to do to be a mindful, ethical angler. Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. I think like so much of life, it's a journey, you know, and there's a progression that happens in that journey. Um, I didn't think, I just, when I first started really getting into fishing in college, all I wanted to do was catch fish. I didn't care if I kept them or not. I didn't care where they came from or they were hatchery fish or wild fish or native fish. I didn't even understand those issues. But there's, you know, and, and, and again, I still spin fish today. I still, I even bait fish. Um, off bait fish for big blue cats with my kids on the Potomac. But um, for me, anyway, there was a progression and it was interesting. It doesn't always happen this way, but I started fishing with bait exclusively. I got into lures and then with a spinning rod. And, and I, again, I still use spinning rods, but um, then I got into fly fishing. And as I made that personal journey through the different methods of angling, and I also uh, love to ice fish. It's another, another, <laughs> another, a different way of fishing. But um, I became more knowledgeable about where the fish were and what fish needed in terms of healthy habitat. And it became obvious that you would find more trout, for example, in a headwater stream in the Green Mountain National Forest than I might, uh, you know, fishing. Uh, you know, the New Haven River, which is a slower moving, larger water body that, you know, was a little warmer. Um, it, you know, I, I became curious about why whenever I found deadfall in the river, you know, there'd always be a fish behind the deadfall or in and amongst the deadfall. When I found, mm -hmm. you know, brush piles, there'd always be crappie or bluegill hidden in there. And I began to realize that, oh, I see what happens, you know, 
if you cut the trees along the streamside area and you, and you remove them, which is what we did across America, you know, in the early part of this, early part of the last century in the mid part of this, up to the mid part of the century, what happens is then you, you lose that large woody debris component. It's not falling into the creek and giving fish a place to hide and seek refuge. If you don't have a connected system where the headwaters are accessible down to the larger river systems, trout can't, for example, manifest their various life history forms where sometimes, you know, they can, they can come down and feed in the larger water bodies and get really big. And then when the summer comes, they want to head back up to those colder, higher elevation streams. But if you've got a dam block in the way or a perch culvert, they can't do that. Um, yeah. And it was this progression for me where I just realized, oh, I see, we have to leave the trees along the streamside areas. So they shade the, the stream and provide thermal cover, keep the streams nice and cold and shady, but then also let those trees fall in so they can provide that, that holding cover. And then, oh, look at that down below where the tree is, a, a pool has scoured out. And interesting how there's always trout in those pools that are scoured out. <laughs> and so that was the, that was the progression for me as an angler. And, and then of course you get into, I don't keep any native fish unless I uh, foul hook or, you know, catch a, a native fish in a way. And I know it's not going to make it. I'll always take it home to eat it if I do that. But otherwise I always release and I never take out of the water, uh, native, any native fish of any species. Um, I, I am not adverse to, uh, within the rules, you know, obviously always complying with state regulations. I'm not adverse to, uh, if I need to take it home a wild fish, although I really don't take wild fish either. If I'm fishing for hatchery yeah. fish, I have no problem bonking them over the head. Um, we have too many yeah. hatchery fish in places they shouldn't be. And if I'm fishing in a, in, in, in a wild trout fishery and, and I, I catch some hatchery fish, I'll have no problem taking those home for the frying pan. That was my experience. Um, I'm, a, like I said, a novice but uh, lived out in Knoxville for four years and would go out and fish the Smokies and eventually uh, the Teleco River. Have you ever been out to the Teleco? I have, yeah, a long time ago. That's just, I haven't fished it, but I've seen it. It's a sweet river. Oh, it's one of my favorite places on earth. But like you said, it's just being, being informed and knowing what you're doing out there and um, making the right decision for the health of your, of your stream. Um, I think one thing I wanted to ask about on that subject is uh, – the importance of species diversity and of reestablishing native trout in those areas when they may be getting outcompeted by an, an introduced trout. Uh, why is that so important? Yeah, it's, it's, um, there's a, there's a pecking order to the, and it's going to sound elitist, but it's not. I mean, if, if, if you're a naturalist, it makes sense. Native fish come first. And native fish require a healthy habitat to persist, and they require, um, you can't introduce predators that don't belong there. And there are places where we have, for example, native brook trout streams where, you know, they're the state's stocking, uh, you know, brown trout, which, you know, prey on brook trout, they'll eat them. And brown trout, of course, come from Germany. They don't, they're not native here either. Yeah. Rain, rainbow trout are actually native to parts of California up through Alaska, basically the Pacific Rim. But they're, they're, Anders Halverson once wrote a great book called A Totally Synthetic Fish, which describes the uh, proliferation of, of uh, rainbow trout around the country. 
And what we used to do in the old days was, you know, after we, and in fact, it, it ties to the founding of the organization. After we, we logged all these rivers, you know, we took all the wood from the side of the rivers on the hillsides, and then we dammed the rivers up, and then we blew the dams so that we could float these logs downstream, and then we mined the hillsides and let all that runoff into the river, and then we built factories along the river's edge and allowed the water to go, you know, the wastewater to go into the rivers. Everyone was sort of surprised. Look at the fish have all gone away. And so hatcheries became the lazy answer to degraded habitat. And um, it was a, a form of masking habitat degradation to pump out ever more cookie cutter sized trout that are raised in concrete tanks. And hopefully that'll satisfy the anglers so they won't look up on the hillsides and become outraged by the desperation that was, was in their midst. <laughs> and that's basically how Trout Unlimited got founded. It was a group of anglers on the banks of the Asable River who were fed up with the state hiding the effects of uh, habitat degradation through hatchery production. Hmm. So there's a pecking order of fish, as I said earlier. Number, it starts with native fish, and our first rule there should be do no harm. Protect the native fish at all costs. And second, then you have wild fish. And wild fish, like native fish, these are naturally reproducing. They're non-native to that habitat, but they have become naturally reproducing because of good habitat conditions. Those are, those are the second priority. But if you have a conflict between wild fish and native fish, it's the native fish that, you know, TU anyway, will stand with. So in Arizona and New Mexico, for example, there are very rare and imperiled Gila and Apache trout. And we do the same thing with Rio Grande cutthroat trout, where we will um, we'll create artificial barriers, believe it or not, to keep non-native fish downstream from coming up and invading the native populations upstream. And, 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 and we'll often go in and use what we call piscicide or fish poison. And, really? uh, and we'll, we'll kill out the, brown, the invasive brown trout or the invasive rainbow trout and make sure that we have a healthy stream that doesn't have competition from those non-native fish and reintroduce the natives, the Gila's, the um, Apaches, the Rio Grande cutthroat trout. And, and that is one way of stemming loss, basically. But the real answer is to create what they call meta populations, where fish are able to manifest their entire life history in a connected river system, where you've given them access to the downstream areas by getting rid of the invasive non-natives and access to the headwater streams. And that's, that's really the name of the game for large scale restoration that gives these fish a, a fighting chance, uh, particularly with our changing climate. Meta populations. I, I had not heard that term before. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. I'm surprised to hear that uh, about the use of, of piscicide, but it sounds like that, kind of is, is one of the only ways to do it, huh? Yeah, it, it freaks people out. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tool in the toolbox, right? I mean, it's not, it's not always the answer, and it, we, we, don't, we don't do it very often. But yeah, when you have these relic populations that are in, you know, 2 to 3% of their historic habitat, and they're being, you know, they're either being intragressed, meaning they're interbreeding with, uh, in the case of cutthroat, ra rainbow trout, or uh, in the case of like bull trout, they can also interbreed with uh, brook trout in the west. So brook trout are native east of the Mississippi. Bull trout are native uh, west of the Mississippi. 
but they're both char. They're both chars. They're not actually right. trout. So if you put brook trout into the western U.S., which they're all over there now, and you've got uh, bull trout there, uh, they can interbreed and it'll ruin the genetics of the of the bull trout. So we don't do it everywhere, Dylan, but it is it is a technique that you have to use when um, you know you're you're down to the you know last populations of a species. And and, yeah. and we have a lot of education work to do with anglers. You know, a lot of anglers aren't happy with us when they hear we're coming in and using rotenone or some other piscicide to kill fish. And we have a lot of you know we have a we have to explain why we're doing it and how the native fishing is going to be the fishing for native fish will be better. And sure. most times people come around and they say, okay, this makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, in recent light of uh, federal changes in policy, maybe in the last few administrations, how has that affected your work, uh, including the, the most recent 30 by 30 initiative? Um, are you finding it easier to get some of these initiatives done lately? Are you facing more opposition? Um, what are you seeing there at a federal policy level? Uh, that's a, it's a great question. I mean, it's too early to tell what's going to happen with the new administration. You know, we were able to get some good things done, um, you know, in the Trump administration. You know, they uh, thankfully they denied their Corps of Engineers denied a permit for the proposed pebble mine in the headwaters yeah. of uh, Bristol Bay. Uh you know, the administration signed the Great American Outdoors Act into law, which, uh, you know, permanently authorized and provided funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Those are big deals. Those are really big deals. But every administration is different. And, you know, we really view our role at Trout Unlimited as being complete, not only bipartisan, but nonpartisan. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Republicans like Help, like catching big trout just as much as Democrats do, right? Remember Michael Jordan's famous saying that um, uh, Republicans buy sneakers too? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's kind of how we feel. You know, we're equal opportunity conservationists and whoever it is that wants to work with us uh, to get things done to help protect and conserve trout and salmon in the watersheds they depend on, we work with them. So um, I feel optimistic about the future. There's, you know, Part of our job is to make conservation more of a top tier issue for people. I think sometimes it um, it becomes subjugated to other issues, and uh, I'm sorry, subordinate to other issues. Mm. And you know, you think about climate change, for example. Part of what we need to do is to help people understand that when you protect a high elevation headwater stream, you're not just making it better for native fish and cold, clean water you're also reducing downstream water filtration costs for local communities. And when you reconnect a river to its flood floodplain and you let it breathe again, you're diminishing the energy of the next flood on downstream infrastructure, like bridges and roads that would otherwise be damaged or blown out. And when we go out there and do watershed restoration, yeah, we're making, we're creating meta populations, right? We're, we're creating these, connected systems for that make fishing a lot better but we're also providing thousands of family wage jobs in rural communities across america and so that's the ticket for us is to be able to talk about our work in a broader context because if you look at you know a choice between protecting trout versus clean drinking water trout will lose 
if you look at the difference of allowing fish to move through a connected system versus the need to diminish the these uh, hundred year floods that are now occurring at decadal intervals, the fish are going to lose. You know, if you look at I'm losing my job uh, because of an endangered species, well, then the endangered species is going to lose. In this case, and in our case, sadly, every native trout in the United States, and there's 25 of them, have either been listed or proposed for listing under the Endangered Species Act. So, wow. yeah, wow. so um, that's our job is to make our work, to place our work in a broader context so people can see the societal benefit of protecting, reconnecting, and restoring river systems. Yeah, the, I, I didn't know that they had all been um, proposed or listed as uh, endangered. Yeah, I think um, you're doing super important work. I'm, I'm excited to be um, a member now, like I said, and hopefully get involved with the local chapter here. Awesome. That, that Guadalupe River chapter is terrific. They have, you know, they've only got the Guadalupe River there, and trout aren't, aren't historically native in that system. Right. Um, we, did, we did talk years ago to the, I think it's the Guadalupe Mountain National Park, there was some thought that there they had they had naturally reproducing rainbow trout in there in that system. Oh. They still do, and we talked with them years ago about potentially reintroducing Rio Grande cutthroat there, but we oh, haven't man, been able would be to cool. get it. It would be super cool. I've never caught a cutthroat. Oh yeah, it would it would be so great to have cutthroat back there. There's some dispute among the evolutionary biologists, the people who study this, as to whether or not. Those fish would have been native in there, but a lot enough smart people think that they were. But anyway, that, what's so cool about Guadalupe River to you? They're one of our largest chapters, and they don't have a lot of wild native fish there, right? And so, what they do is they support things elsewhere. They they were one of the first chapters to support our efforts to protect Bristol Bay. You know, years ago when we first got in that campaign, I remember wow. their chapter president called me and said, "We want to send you a ten thousand dollar check to stop that mine," and they did. And then they created this thing called the Tomorrow Fund. They raised over $100,000 to support Trout Unlimited's youth education work around the country. Oh, and man. it's so cool. I just think that, I think the world of Guadalupe River Trout Unlimited, they're, they're just, it's a bunch of people who really get it. And, uh, and they, yeah. you know, I, I always think that, you know, we talked about that progression of an angler and, when you get to that point in your angling where you realize that the most important thing is to give back, it's not about what you take or what you catch, it's about what you can give back, you know, I feel like then you've arrived. And you've got a lot of leaders at GRTU that have, have arrived. That's awesome. I look forward to hopefully meeting some of them. I, I actually uh, don't have too much longer here in Texas. We're moving up to uh, Colorado and we'll be living on the Roaring Fork later this year. So um, nice. looking forward to some great fishing up there. But yes. uh, I'm actually heading out tomorrow for some uh, bass fishing on the Blanco River down here, which is going to be fun. I haven't done that either. Nice. Are they on the top now? I don't know. I'm actually going with a guide because, um, you know, I'm going with my wife and uh, have not fished this river at all. So we said, why don't we just get a guide and, and learn? I, I like to do that in a new area. Go one yeah. time with a guide or with, with someone who really knows the area. And uh, it saves me five or ten trips of uh, trying to figure out what's going on and, you know, what I need to be casting. I love uh, so it. I, I, yeah, I recommend that to new people. It, and, you know, spend a little bit of money up front to learn from someone who knows what they're doing because otherwise you'll spend, like I did, a whole summer 
going out and hardly catching anything because you're doing so many things wrong. Yeah. Um, but uh, speaking of new angler um, education and recruitment, let's talk a little bit more about that because I think in the hunting world as well, that seems to be a huge focus, getting the next generation involved, excited, educated about um, the traditions and the ethics of of a hunter and an outdoorsman. We also have a limited amount of space, and if you talk to an individual angler, they're probably sick of coming up to their favorite spot and finding someone else there. Why is it so important that uh, we keep bringing new people out and um, and you know getting others excited about this? Well, it's it's a great question, Dylan. I mean, when you think about the progression of our country in the span of a generation, we've gone from sixty percent of us growing up in uh, rural areas to 80% of us living in urban or suburban environments. And, um, you know, the hunting and fishing is a great way to, you know, gain a visceral connection to nature. Um, you have to understand how river systems work to be a good angler. You have to understand uh, what healthy habitat is to know where to hunt. Um, and, you know, we're, if we don't have that next generation of conservation anglers, conservation hunters coming into the fold, the concern is that we'll lose support for things like protecting small headwater streams under the Clean Water Act, which is yeah. uh, something the Trump administration proposed to do away with, was those protections for those uh, ephemeral streams, the streams that are seasonal, but that can flow down and influence the health of larger water bodies. And without you know, people growing up with the connection, either they don't have to hunt and fish, but they have to be connected to nature. And hunting and fishing is one really good way to become connected to nature. So that's yeah. why we put such a premium on what we call our stream of engagement, whether it's kids in New York City, uh, learning about the hydrologic cycle of, of uh, uh, water and, and how they're drinking water that comes out of their tap, comes from the Catskills, um, because New York made a wise decision to protect the Catskills many, many decades ago, or whether it's, um, you know, uh, Five Rivers uh, college students who don't even fish going out and participating in a community science project where they're uh, looking at dissolved oxygen and doing sedimentation studies and water, qual water quality studies. Those kids are going to be advocates. They're going to be better educated. They're going to be more likely to take action when we ask them to take action on, you know, a clean water action alert. And yeah. so that's why it's just so vital for us to keep training that next generation of conservation stewards. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, you, you can't fully value something until you've experienced it firsthand, I think. Um, so that's great. Uh, we really touched on a lot of the things that uh, I was interested in hearing about. I don't want to take too much of your time, but uh, just real quick, what are, what upcoming either projects are you working on? I know you talked about the Snake River um, and upcoming trends that are encouraging or discouraging to your efforts. The, uh, the Snake River campaign is massive right now. We're basically working with Congressman Mike Simpson, a Republican from Idaho, on a proposal that would remove the f four lower Snake River dams. And um, Are they hydroelectric? They're hydroelectric dams. Uh. They provide about 3 to 4% of the region's powers, power. We would make up that uh, power with clean energy and uh, 
make sure that we do this in such a way that any of the communities of place or interest that are dependent on those dams today are not left behind, that they're all taken care of in one way or another. And, and, and the reason we're so concerned about this is, you know, this is going back to the beginning of our conversation, Dylan, those Snake River, uh, sockeye, uh, sockeye, steelhead, and Chinook will otherwise be gone within 20 years, probably. Um, you know, this is the, the Snake River Basin contains more than 50% of the habitat for salmon in the US and scientists predicted in about 20 years, it'll contain about 68% of the habitat. And the reason it's gonna grow is because it's high elevation areas that are thermally protected. The water's gonna be colder. So they'll even be able to survive through a change in climate. But we've gotta get those fish back home and they can't get home now because they, they suffer too much mortality at each of those dams. So that's probably our top priority. And then we're unveiling a whole slew, you know, dozens, hundreds of new restoration projects all around the country. Our field season, our field season starts in earnest, you know, kind of after runoff. So depending on where you are in the country, that's when we get out there in earnest and begin the good work of reconnecting and restoring these streams, working on Capitol Hill and in state legislatures to protect the most important landscapes. And, and then excitingly, I think, hope, I pray that we'll be able to reopen our youth camps around the country this summer. Yeah. We've got 26 youth camps in different states, um, including a great one in Texas. And I hope uh, you can too. Yeah, assuming, assuming it's safe for the kids and their mentors, uh, you know, we're hoping to do that as well. That's awesome, man. I think uh, I love that you guys are doing a balance of, you know, national infrastructure projects like that, like the Snake River, and then also down to the level of uh, individual landowners, because that's where so much of conservation happens, especially in a state like Texas, where it's 90 something percent privately owned. Um, well, yeah, uh, Chris, thank you so much for your time. Um, I look forward to seeing your continued success in protecting our, our cold, clean, fishable waters. And uh, if you find yourself in Colorado this year, look me up. I'll show you how to fish. That's awesome, Dylan. <laughs> have, have a great time out there. Catch some native cutthroat. Oh, I look forward to it. All right, man. Thanks, Chris. Take care. Take care.